Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I am your host, Trey Whetstone, coming here from Columbus, Ohio, and it's been a while, but I'm finally continuing with part four of my Hitchcock coverage. And for this episode, I am having on a guest and the first one in the Hitchcock series. But this is a frequent collaborator, I would say, um, back and forth between my podcast and his. And that is Nathan Bartlebaugh from Phantom Galaxy. Nathan, how's it going? Man, I'm doing great. So, hey, I've been on here three times out of 19. That's not too bad. It's not too shabby. <laughs> I don't know what your guest rate is, if that's the if that's a record or not. But Well, I've been, you. yeah, you just pulled ahead of Dave. So, um, okay. With that's, two. that's my goal is always racing Dave Becker and pretty much everything. I'm always behind, though. Yeah, I hope you're not racing him in movie collections. No, no, no. We've learned. We've <laughs> learned that that is not even a, a consideration. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you had expressed interest in uh, coming on and covering a specific movie on here, I think. And then we kind of worked the schedule around a little bit because it's kind of flexible of which movies I was covering, which episodes. So what made you want to jump on for this episode? I can't even remember because I'm not sure what movie. <laughs> the, the two movies here. The, well, these are earlier in Hitchcock. I mean, I think some of my favorite Hitchcocks uh, do fall in the later periods. I think Vertigo is one of my all-time favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I might be hitting you up if someone else hasn't <laughs> to come back cover Vertigo. No, I think I've got you. Uh, I think I've got you pegged for for Vertigo. But yeah, no, that I, it's been so long. I feel like since we set this up and a lot of things have yeah. happened. So yeah, but, it was. Yeah, but go ahead. I was to say, um, I, but what intrigued me, there's one, one of the two movies we're talking about tonight, I think is a really, I, I don't say it's underrated because I think it's rated very well, but I think that in Hitchcock's filmography, it often gets understated. And I think that in a lot of ways, it's the first, it's the, it's the first one in his, and he had a pretty, uh, he's had a pretty good run of movies, even up till this point when this movie we're talking about comes out, I believe. And yet, to me, it's maybe the first ones where you start to see the Hitchcock that is like delivering masterpiece after masterpiece later on. And I think he hits a stride with a movie with, with one of these two movies that's uh, pretty impressive. But I think when you look at his whole body of work, that it tends to get shuffled around a little bit. I think it's considered one of the good ones. I don't know if everybody holds it up as much as it maybe as it deserves even myself i think going even though i really liked it and wanted to revisit and i think it's inspired a ton of things revisiting it i was sort of struck again oh wow this is a really good movie but i often forget that yeah and i think there's it's what you're saying is like there's several different eras of hitchcock because he was in the game for so long you know there's the silent era where he was kind of on top of the world and then there was the British thriller period where he's trying to figure things out. And then the early American thriller period, which is pretty much what we're talking about here. Yeah. And then it kind of a switch flips and then, and I wouldn't say it's just a switch flips because there are a lot of good movies that just don't get talked about as much as the later filmography, but they're not the classics that we get with like rear window and vertigo and psycho and the birds and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I absolutely get what you're saying. And, but either way, I appreciate you coming on and uh, talking with me here. I think this will be this would have been a pretty sparse episode because there's just not much going on in between these movies or around these movies since they're kind of back to back to back within a very short period of time. These three mo- or the two movies that we're going to cover tonight came out. So 
Nathan, I'm going to go ahead and set up a little bit of the background and then we can get talking about our first movie, if that sounds good to you. Yeah, sounds awesome. Okay, and yeah, just chime in if you've uh, got anything as we go along, but I've just got a few little facts here about our first movie and um, where we left off. So we left off, and it's been a while now, but the last movie I'd covered was Saboteur, and Saboteur was a pretty big success for Universal, and Hitchcock was happy to continue working with Universal after this. If you remember, Selznick was kind of renting him out to people, (laughs) and he was paying him a terrible fee like he had a flat salary while he was making more and more from these companies and but Selznick kind of reset all the fees for his services and gave him a payment of fifty thousand dollars after the set or after the success of Saboteur so that's where we kind of left off and then May of 42 Hitchcock took a lunch with Gordon McDonald who proceeded to outline these events that were apparently a true story And it would lead him into his next feature film, which would be Shadow of a Doubt. And that is the first movie we're going to talk about tonight. It was initially set to be called Uncle Charlie after, you know, one of the main characters of the film, but was changed to Shadow of a Doubt later. Like many Hitchcock films, they started out as something and the title morphed into something else. But, you know, unlike um, a lot of his movies, this was not based on anything else, though. We didn't have like a you know, a novel or a stage play or anything that setting up this, it was just this kind of true story. Before Hitchcock could get through this, though, he did have a couple of unfortunate things happen in his life. And we'll touch on those really quickly. His mother died in the fall of 42. And then his older brother, William, would commit suicide just five months later. They don't know if it's due to, you know, depression over his mother's death, but he was really, he's kind of a drunk and was into drugs and stuff. So they don't really know what happened there, but Hitchcock would go on and probably due to some of those events would lose a hundred pounds by the end of 1943. It was kind of discovered, you know, he was getting an examination for a life insurance policy and found out he had an enlarged heart and a hernia, but refused to get surgery for them. So he was denied the life insurance policy. So, oh my gosh, but that's a dropping 100 pounds in a year or so is no joke. No, no, it is not. That's about all I've got as far as the setup for Shadow of Doubt. There wasn't too much um, to go off here, but. Do you want to get in and start talking about this one, since I think this is kind of probably the main event of the episode? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, definitely. And a couple of things. What's interesting is we're talking about this, and I think in my mind, and I just sort of mentioned, this is the movie that I wanted to really come on for, and I, I kind of always see it in my head is where we see Hitchcock really develop into the kind of filmmaker that he is later on. And so it sounds like this is early in his career, but this is really like the 30th movie he made. Oh, yeah. Yeah, It's so deep uh, into his career. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is not only is it the 30th movie he made, it's also after a lot of excellent films. I mean, it's after Rebecca. It's after The Lady Vanishes. It's after 39 Steps. I mean, this is not like his first really good movie. I just think that it's a movie that when you look at the style and the way it's put together, you can see the seeds of Psycho and Vertigo, and uh, several of the other movies that follow, you know, particularly leading up into these movies like Rear Window that have this very specific thriller bent. It's not that he was always making thrillers. He always had a very stylistic 
vibe, but there's some stuff he's doing in Shadow of a, of a Doubt, and I think it's partially due to the fact that, yeah, this, in a sense, this wasn't previously a book or anything like that. It was an original script, and, and actually, you know, you're saying it wasn't based off a play, but it, it's an original script from a playwright, from Thornton Wilder, uh, who probably a lot of people may know from Our Town, you know, um, which is a, it was a great play. Thornton Wilder was a great playwright. And I think you can see that, that aspect in the film itself and the way the film is written. And I think the movie is so strongly, I think anyway, so strongly written and conceived in the way its characters speak to each other and the things that they say and they think that it kind of frees Hitchcock up to really focus on the movie in a stylistic way that I don't, I think shadow of a doubt, it looks very different from Rebecca and from the 39 steps and from uh, maybe a more thriller. That seems a lot more like what we know in his wheelhouse, a movie like the lady vanishes. So I don't know what you think. And I know, I guess we'll get into it in a moment, but even from that aspect, there are things going on in shadow of a doubt where I feel like he's, He's getting close to that like masterpiece level of the kind of movie that he was most well known for making. Yeah, yeah, and I think it took me maybe uh maybe ten minutes to get into this, but once a year into it, you're you're kind of hooked on it. And I agree with what you're saying. Where yeah, there were a lot of good movies that came before, but even with something like The Lady Vanishes, you talk about with that ending. Um, and there's, in, I mean, he's had other films where, you know, there's these big, long action set pieces of like shootouts and stuff. And that just doesn't seem like later Hitchcock style. And there's, you know, happier endings in some of these movies. And, uh, you know, with all that, I feel like shadow of a doubt. I mean, I wouldn't call shadow of a doubt. I don't, I don't want to say anything about the ending, but <laughs> no, I'm with you, Nathan. I absolutely get it's what you're saying. It's not a bucket full of laughs. Exactly. It's no, not like, oh, no, it's very tense. Races and rainbows. Yes. And it's tense up to the end, I think. And I think where some of these others kind of relieved their main tension before, you know, the final 10 minutes of the film. And then we're left with like some wrap up stuff. And I don't think there's a whole lot of that here. So I think it's more in that vein. I agree with you there. So uh, before we get in too deep, I'll go ahead and um, set this one up a little bit. So it was uh, released in 1943, I believe early 1943. And the synopsis reads, A bored teen living in Santa Rosa, California, is frustrated because nothing seems to be happening in her life and that of her family. Then she receives wonderful news. Her uncle, for whom she was named, is arriving for a visit. But Uncle Charlie may not be the man he seems to be. First off, I think that's a pretty good synopsis it doesn't get into very deep into the plot but what do you think about the name nathan before we get into this do you like would you have liked it to be called uncle charlie or do you think shadow of a doubt has that much more like prestigious kind of sound to it oh for sure i mean i mean um, yeah uncle charlie probably in 1943 would have sounded like a like a comedy or maybe like a frank capra movie or something which might have worked in hitchcock's favor because he kind of likes playing with that and i think in this movie particularly he kind of unravels a lot of things about like small town life and this idea of, you know, the, the, the quintessential Norman Rockwell vision of, of what a happy and a contented life is. And he just sort of like peels that all apart. Right. Like and Thornton Wilder does it as well. So I, you know, uncle Charlie, I think would have made the movie feel a lot more, um, I don't know, satirical it, it, it to me 
Uncle Charlie would have made the movie seem a little bit more eccentric. Uh, it may be given away a little bit. Now, Shadow of a Doubt does get you ready for a thriller, but I think what it kind of doesn't prepare you for is the other flip side, is how it starts out. That weird, like, here's the small town, here's the girl who's yearning for her family to just be, you know, livened up a little bit, and you have the Charlie character coming into the, the frame. I think it kind of works having Shadow of a Doubt as a, as a title, because Shadow of a Doubt sounds like a thriller or maybe a noir, and it is those things, but I don't think you're ready for the way it starts out, where it could almost be a Frank Capra movie, right? Like half of Cap, some of Capra's regular cast members are in this film i mean you're not five minutes in before you realize that clarence is her father right yeah and you know the the thing about this one is i like what you said about it kind of prepares you for that later hitchcock stuff because it really does have that kind of there's almost like this sinister like (laughs) heavy tone to it right as compared to some of the other hitchcock stuff we've seen there's just like they're not messing around it takes a little bit to start but once we get there it's yeah it's intense. My my kids are watching it, and my wife, who had never seen it, were watching it with me today, and they were sort of like, oh, oh, oh. And there's a there's a dinner table scene <laughs> towards the end, which is a perfect, and I, I won't, I'll, I'll talk more about it when we get there, but it's this perfect, like, kind of triple threat going on where you have, uh, it's the combination of Hitchcock's direction, Wilder's screenplay, and Cotton's performance that is, I think, maybe one of Hitchcock's, like, best like scenes particularly involving um characters talking to one another you know like it's got some of the intensity of something like psycho uh for those discussions that norman is having in his hotel room you know and i think that that kind of that kind of intensity it's crazy because some of what he's saying and some of what's happening in that scene feel like they're cutting through the you know the veneer of society at that time right again there's there's elements of what hitchcock does in this that remind me of like like you know in a in a different way because hitchcock is pressing against a very different group of censors in 1943 but there's some of what hitchcock does here that reminds me of what david lynch does later uh in a much more twisted way in movies like blue velvet and in in in, in shows like twin peaks you know i think the dichotomy of the perverse and the twisted and the sinister underneath the wholesome and the esteemed this is the way life is supposed to live to to be lived you know the kind of very like have it all together button down hometown nostalgia and then what's happening underneath of all of that is a little bit more like uh dire yeah and i'm glad you said that because do you do you think lynch was inspired at all by this because these characters that are set up are just so eccentric and so over the top, really, that it kind of seems like they might have been, you know, tw- they could live in the world of Twin Peaks. And I don't think we'd be missing a beat, especially you have the, um, you know, the little sister who's this very know-it-all character, very over the top with that. And then you have the mother character who is something else. I tell you, doesn't feel necessarily... um surreal or like it couldn't be a real person because i feel like you probably know someone's mom that's like that but it's just a little bit taken a step further do you agree with that yeah well i think that's what he's doing he's kind of picking at these archetypes they're almost archetypes that could exist on television uh, uh, around this time period and and again be that sort of like wonderful example of a nuclear family but he twists them just a little bit and i think it's thornton wilder doing the twisting 
and I and I keep going back to Our Town. Uh, have you read Our Town? Are you familiar with it? Um, I'm not. No. And it's it, so Our Town's a story that is about a small town seen through the eyes of a young woman who actually dies and then comes back to life. And that's not a horror story, but she is kind of seeing her town through new eyes, the eyes of someone who will not really be able to participate in life again. And so she's wandering around and seeing everything through that visage. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that Lynch was a fan of Thornton Wilder uh, and, and, and obviously a fan of Hitchcock and that this movie did inspire. And of course we know that this movie inspired a lot of other things later mm-hmm. at a couple and in, 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 including, I'm sure we'll get to it, but the, uh, the 2013 movie Stoker, the Chanwick Park movie, which yes. is really a an adaptation or a kind of re-envisioning of it. Like, yeah, it, it takes some of these more like uh, kind of the, the more understated twisted elements that Hitchcock understands he can only hint at and sort of brings them to the forefront of that, of that film. Um, I like that film. I don't think it's as good as this one because of... I think some of Hitchcock's limitations with things he can only suggest uh, in some ways, this movie ends up being, I think a little bit more subversive, but to your point about the characters, you're right. They're very quirky. And I think, you know, you're asking uh, to me, one of the most like Lynch like things or, or the thing that kind of really kind of t- like uh, taps into that feeling for me is the father character here. And his buddy, who's played by Hume Cronin, you know, who is ma- married to Jessica Tandy. And, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, like, my wife was like, Hume Cronin, and her instant recognition of him was from Batteries Not Included. <laughs> and, hey, I don't know if you ever saw that movie with the, the tenement building and had the little robots mm-hmm. that looked like uh, yep. mini spaceships. So that, uh, but Cronin was in a lot of a lot of films, and he's here. And, the, and, and it's funny because... And he kind of comes in and they're both sort of infatuated. I, I think Cronin's character may be a writer or a would-be writer, you know, of of these sort of like kind of tawdry crime stories. You know, it's funny. His young daughter at the beginning is like, well, dad, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't read that. And he's like, well, no, you shouldn't read it. And she's like, no, no, I'm reading Ivanhoe. Like, I, you, you misunderstand me. It's not that <laughs> It's not that, that would disturb me. It's, it's that's beneath me. And he just says, oh. And he walks, she's, what are you reading? She says, Ivanhoe. And he goes, oh. And he just walks upstairs. Yeah, it's but, very, like, she's very existential in her, in yeah, her conversation with her father. Right. She's very aloof above everybody, it seems like. But then other times she's just like a little girl. But um, the, that discussion the two of them have where they sit down and they immediately go into this thing of well if i was going to kill you you yes. know here's the way <laughs> i would do it and it gets so elaborate that there are later points you know where cronin is coming over and like look at this mushroom do you think you need it and he's like <laughs> oh and i think the wife interrupts him or somebody interrupts him says you know you're talking about murdering people he said well no i'm not i'm talking about killing him and he's talking about killing me. And, and and that's the point when his wife says, come on, this is the way they relax. <laughs> I know that that's honestly, that is one of my, and I definitely had that in my notes here. That's one of my favorite parts of this movie is the back and forth. And you can tell that Hitchcock where he was kind of stifled with his humor aspects early on is he's getting to put some of that in the film. Cause you, he did have a very, um, you know, from all re- perspective, you know, from all reports that he did had this very like, black sense of humor yeah a macabre <laughs> sense of humor yeah. for sure yeah but, but i love this is like it's a perfect sort of commentary on how wrapped up uh particularly you know i think the 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 zeitgeist at the time and here you have these again you get back to these uh wholesome moral families we go to church and we are you know um 
we have values and these things we believe in and then, but they're fascinated by this darker side of life. And then uh, we kind of see that brought in. And I guess it's a point where we kind of talk about the relationship that's going on between Teresa Wright's character and Joseph Cotton's character. Cause I, that, that relationship is still extraordinarily weird yeah. in the context of this movie. Now it must've been very strange in 1943. I I'm still, because of the way it's laid out and the way it is presented and sketched out, it's very, it is, it's still strange. It's not easily pinned down as any one thing. Uh, there are moments when at first I'm thinking, oh, you haven't defined this well, but then I think that's sort of the point. Mm-hmm. For me, it's all about the performances. I think the performances are so good that this relationship is so front and center that this is why the movie's good or, or, or really good, in my opinion. And I think it sets the, the the stage for a lot of twisted relationships that we see in Hitchcock movies going on, including the relationships of Vertigo, where they are dysfunctional from the from the from the word go. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it's like there's this weird um, hinting like, oh, we must be telepathic or something early on in the film and all this kind of weird stuff. And then just the way they interact with each other, it's very strange. And but yeah, oh, go ahead. What's weird is so you have Teresa Wright's character at the very beginning. She's upstairs. She's sitting there thinking, and I love the dialogue too. She's like, she works like a dog, just like a dog, and she's <laughs> she's very like down on her mother. But it's but she's not helping her mother. She's laying on the bed, having you know existential yeah. thoughts about how what's going on. This whole family, they just like they're lost in their minds, except for the mother who's sort of running the show, and everyone else is just drifting through various daydreams. And she's got this idea that everyone's buttoned down and nobody has. You know, that this family's just sort of like wasting away. And then this idea that, you know, what will liven us up will be Uncle Charlie. Like, we need Uncle Charlie here. And it's bizarre because at the same time, in just the very first scene, we see Joseph Cotton's character, who's this Charlie, uh, realizing that he's being sort of followed or pursued by people. We don't know all the details, but we realize he thinks he needs to get out of town. And when he sends the telegram, he immediately, he mentions Charlie, who who's been named after him, so you already have that connection too, and the it's just odd because it feels like we're missing something, right? Like we're missing some previous interactions. Why, why the two of them are sort of like why does he like why is she drawn to him? Why is he so aware of that? Uh, but there's no real explanation for it. No, and there's no like hinting of anything that he's been around all her life or anything. And she, I mean, she is the eldest of the kids. Yeah. Absolutely. So maybe early on there was something weird, but I think it's cool that it kind of leaves you guessing. Yeah. I think at the end of the day that, you, you know, you're all, you get the basic idea that, okay, he represents a mysterious element. He's he, you know, just like she's the eldest sibling. He's the opposite. He's the younger sibling. He's about, he's much younger than her mother. He's someone who they probably don't talk about much. So he's very like, enticing to her but but when he gets there and the way they interact is very odd because she seems she seems beyond enamored with him she seems almost sort of smitten with him you know yeah no it's a very weird relationship and i i think a lot of this movie is and Teresa writes great in this um i think she's very likable and very much good for our leading heroine here but i man joseph cotton really and really pulls you in and really delivers this performance. And that's Joseph Cotton of like, you know, Citizen Kane and the third man. And one of my favorite sci-fi movies of the seventies, he had a role in was Soylent Green. And yeah, he's, he's just very good at this and not trying to pivot off your point there, but just, he's just such this 
I don't even know the word to describe it, but like I said earlier, he's just got these sinister, there's something off there from the beginning. And we see a scene with him early on that's kind of weird um, where we don't have any connection to any of the characters yet. But as he's going on, it's just clearer and clearer that he's hiding something. And I think a lot of the draw is what is he hiding and what is he willing to do to keep that covered up? Yes. And I, because even the first scene when we see him, one of the things I think is an interesting choice about this film, at least I thought so when I was discussing this with my wife, is that in a film like this where you have this character and it's not a, I don't think it's a stretch to say that he's, you know, they eventually suspect whether they're right or not, you know, the shadow of a doubt is, is he a killer? Is he murdering people? You know, I think the movie sets it up pretty quickly. You know, you get this vibe and, and I, I don't think that that's even a spoiler. I think it was, you know, it's in most of the synopses that I've seen. Mm-hmm. So we, 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 we know we're headed for that destination. The thing that surprises me is when he shows up, and I don't know if you felt this way, despite everyone talking so much about him and how interesting he is, uh, he never comes off to me as particularly charming. Like, in, like no. I think he's an interesting character, and we... We don't like him, but we're intrigued by him. But he isn't coming in charming the pants of everybody. He doesn't really put on this facade. Like he, he's he's quick to. He, I don't think he even has the ability to completely cloak that, which is which is what makes it so strange. I think that Charlie is so smitten with him uh, and so taken with him, and that the mother seems to be almost in his thrall in a certain way, a sense where she almost, you know, she wants his approval and things like that. And the father is sort of like, oh, that's Uncle Charlie. It's great to have him around. Like. He seems sort of sinister right from the get-go. Um, yeah. I, oh, go ahead, Nathan. Sorry. No, I. It, it just it's an interesting choice. And another interesting choice is when he starts to cut things from the newspaper. <laughs> I, I think it's so phenomenally odd that if there's nothing that directly implicates you, the best way to make the people you're staying with suspect you of something is to start cutting chunks of the newspaper out and hiding them in your pocket. It's almost like he wants to be found out, right? <laughs> right, yeah. And I think that Thornton and Hitchcock are too, what's the word? They're too fastidious in their style to let that be an accident. Yeah. You know what vibes I kind of get from this? And I don't know if you feel the same. And this might have been, you know, this might have been a slasher if it was released in the <laughs> in the 80s. But this gives me straight up kind of the same uh, character we see of Terry O'Quinn plays in The Stepfather, where I don't think he's really charming and I don't think he's, really all that well put together but you know everyone seems to love him and it clear it's clear that he has very sinister intentions too i don't know if you think that's apt or not but no i know i think that's very apt and i think that you see things in here that suggest what you're talking about um and 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 there's a lot of scenes i will say you know we talk about this movie i think it's an excellent film i i my esteem of it grew watching it this time i think that you know i've heard a lot of people tell me oh it's a good movie i think it's a little bit better than that but it does have some issues and i think some of the issues is uh deal with how we are supposed to telegraph certain things that are going to happen later we sort of know that if something if you know if he cuts the paper out that's going to come up later if he gives somebody something that's going to come up you know everything's sort of tied to him but it does raise the question, which, which you're sort of talking about here, is in, in regards to his mental state and uh, how much he wants people to know or not know. You know, giving Charlie this ring early on that has someone else's initials mm-hmm. engraved in it. I mean, you absolutely know that's going to come back at some point. And then he chooses to do it and she comments upon it and he 
he hems and hauls about taking it back, but it's like, what possesses him to do that? This is in this, you know, it seems to, to, to tie in though. And I think here's the other thing that we're going to talk about this movie in the next movie. One of the things that Hitchcock was right on the border of at the time he was making these films is the burgeoning uh, realm of psychology, right? Particularly mm-hmm. psychology as it applies to the concept of something like a serial killer. I mean, yep. the concept of a serial killer isn't even fully like developed at the point that this film is out, you know, even later when we get to something like psycho. So, I mean, it's interesting to see how they, and, and later when we see serial killers that sort of like to kind of bandy their crimes out in front of everyone, that like to leave clues and leave these little, these little hints and these notions. To me, that's one of the most sophisticated things that's happening in the film where we don't really know, you know, is this a, why would a guy do this sort of thing who doesn't want to be caught? Yeah. And, Two things on that, Nathan. So what you were saying about the serial killer, absolutely. I mean, this is the I think this is the same year as the Leopard Man, right? And that has the first inklings of like a serial killer type character as well. But it hadn't been I don't think the term had been used at all, Um, even though we had obviously had serial killers up into that point. But yeah, the way that it seems like in in opposition of Terry O'Quinn's character from The Stepfather, it seems like, yes, things are unraveling, but it's not like he's losing control or he's losing his grip. It's almost like he's letting the grip loose, as as what I felt like as he's, you know, he has that dinner table conversation. It's almost like he's letting this stuff build up. And the suspicion, it's very obvious. And like you said, you know, Hitchcock is just too deliberate of a director to let something so on the nose, I feel like pass through. So I think you're onto something there for sure. Yes. And I, so, and I've, I've read that, uh, you know, people have mentioned like in the seventies, the FBI coined the term serial killer. Now also supposedly not too long after this film in 43 in 1947, incidentally, here's a, here's a dovetail with another podcast. I was on the Dorothy B. Hughes wrote a novel called In a Lonely Place, which I reviewed with Dave Becker over on DVD Infatuation. It's a Nicholas Ray movie. Excellent, excellent movie, by the way, um, with Humphrey Bogart. And it, uh, she, I believe the term, she drops the term serial killer, I think, or a serial murderer in that, in that film. Uh, but yeah, you know, and then you mentioned that the eighties vibe, and I think we get, we get a lot of sort of Hitchcock inspirations later on, and one thing that occurred to me, uh, there's a movie in the 80s, one of my favorite 80s horror films, that I think is so obviously inspired by another Hitchcock movie that we don't see initially the ways it's tied to this movie. And that's Fright Night from 1985. You know, Fright Night is obviously, I think, Rear Window, right? Yeah. But the way that that, the way that, that vampire in that film, again, I'm spoiling tons of movies here, right? But, you know, there's a sense that the vampire lets Charlie, right? Mm-hmm. His name's Jeff Back. <laughs> Listening to Joseph Cotton say Charlie made me think of the way Chris Sarandon says Charlie in Fright Night. Like the same sort of intonation. And there's this feeling of this cat and mouse game where I, it's in my best interest not to play this game with you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. Like he allows him to see him. He allows him to keep putting him. He has multiple opportunities to dispatch Charlie in the easiest ways possible. He never chooses to do so. And the song and dance that comes into that in between him and those teenage characters is very similar and, and unsavory to what happens in, you know, it, the, the relationships in Rear Window are, are purposely, uh, you know, 
they have to be distant because of the possibilities of misunderstanding things like that. So the character relationships between the, the Jerry Dandridge vampire in Fright Night and his younger sort of adversaries is not that far off from the way that Joseph Cotton and, uh, interacts with, with Charlie in this movie. No, it's not. And Rear Window, I think I brought this up on another episode, but I don't think horror fans realize how much Rear Window comes up. <laughs> and it's it's everywhere because, I mean, a new film that I know we've both seen is Watcher. Yeah, that's obviously Rear Window. You've got newer stuff like Disturbia. You've got all that kind of stuff. But Hitchcock's everywhere, right? Hitchcock's got his hands like in the movie industry. I feel like from there on, I mean, whether it's Giallo's or... Uh, slashers or anything in those veins like he kind of you know pioneered that i think and this is what you alluded to earlier shadow of a doubt really started to plant those seeds and it's coming out right in the height of the noir movement in america and i think that uh i don't i don't know if i would call this like a classic noir i don't know how you feel about that it's much more of a thriller to me yeah i i don't know that it has the yeah i don't the title like we were talking about the title like I think that that is the noir element. I think that the film itself is not very much a noir. I think because because really, at the end of the day, we can sort of break these characters. There aren't a lot of shades of gray, really, truly, to these characters. I mean, we have the, uh, the, the way they're played and the interplay between the two of them is interesting and has the possibility to flip. But we ultimately have a, a young, innocent girl who is intrepid and is you know, but good natured and good hearted and, and wants to, wants to do the right thing. Doesn't want to shatter her family want, but also doesn't want a murderer out there running around. If, and in fact, her uncle is a truly a murderer. And then I think that, you know, the Joseph Cotton character, we're never quite sure where he is initially. I mean, he definitely has the, the build of a thriller character. This isn't really a movie uh, that has a lot of well-meaning people ending up in horrible situations because of a morass of, morally questionable choices like those elements are there but i think you're right it's built on the mechanism of a thriller that we are we fear for her safety and the safety of many of the other characters around her we're also intrigued by whether or not the cotton character will be able it you know if he's a killer is he going to get away with everything that's happening to him and what about the police that are chasing him so i think everything that makes the movie run runs off of a thriller vibe i do think though that it is strongly character-based and that's why it feels so like to talk about a movie like in a lonely place that has, which is very, very deeply seated in noir that that has the characters, but the thriller elements, the questions of of who murdered somebody and uh, is that killer still out there? They just surround the movie is sort of like a fog. Uh, and then in the midst of that fog are these characters having deep sort of relationship issues and that's where the heart of that film lies whereas this movie's heart is still firmly i think in the thriller elements in the in the questions of will the killer get away who will the killer strike next will charlie end up in peril as she's trying to solve what's going on here so those are the things we're, we're interested in the good characterizations just sort of help it along yeah and i do you do you think nathan that the speaking of do you think the thrill you know, the thrills in this movie or the suspense type stuff. Do you think that's satisfactory? Do you think all those scenes kind of, you know, this is the master of suspense. Do you think they live up to that? Do you think, you know, as we would see in later Hitchcock? You know, so I, I do. And I, I think he must have too, because in many places he cited as saying, this is his favorite movie. Uh, and, and I think in some cases he might've been, you know, 
not goaded, but sort of, you know, led along in that. But then later he would be more very, uh, he would be more adamant about that fact that, yes, you know, Shadow of the Doubt is, is my favorite. And I think that might be because it does look like a really good template for the kinds of things he wanted to do. And it might have been the first time where all of those elements sort of clicked together. Now, when you try to compare the quality of some of these thrill scenes to some of the later movies where he's working with, he's had more, you know, he's had more uh, attempts at this under his belt by that point. He's working with advanced technology. He's working with advanced uh, camera techniques and cinematographers. And he's working, you know, with even maybe more seasoned, I don't want to say more seasoned actors than Joseph Cotton, but, you know, he's working... uh, at, at a higher level as far as technical elements go in some of those other films. So, but I think the stuff in, in shadow of the doubt is that he, instead of having these uh, nerve jangling, always edge of your seat, my, you know, my, my I'm having heart palpitations and oh, that scene's <laughs> over. There is a much more gradual tightening of the screws that I like in some of his other movies did depend more on, or a movie like Rebecca is not even that much of a thriller, right? No. Like it's a mystery and it doesn't have the same feel you expect with Hitchcock. A lady vanishes is again, the question is more about the mystery is like, what's going to be solved. I think there's an urgency to what's going on in shadow of the doubt, but it becomes, it's fundamentally creepy. And I think that's, what's different because I think in some of the later films, vertigo movies like that, the suspense builds and we have tensions but there's a fundamental creepiness to this movie that doesn't necessarily exist in every frame of those other films. I would say even Psycho is a case of this, that Psycho is only really creepy when we get to Norman Bates, right? Whereas yeah. Shadow of a Doubt is creepy basically from the beginning scene all the way through. And you have these weird, the, the, the humming of that song, you know, that she hears, the way that's it, uh, that that's threaded through the film. And by the way, you know, I remember hearing Back to Jerry Dandridge humming Strangers of the Night as he's walking <laughs> through Charlie's house at night. And they, but that humming and that little elements and and watching Cotton sort of break, you know, kind of not break down, but just sort of become unhinged at the dinner table in that sequence. And then the idea that someone is out there is being murdered. What's interesting is we, you know, we're not seeing any on-screen murder, right, in this film. No. And but and so the fact that the level of tension that exists is in the film is impressive. And I think that you talk about the master suspense, he's slowly tuning this in just a way where we're worried and we're not even quite sure what we're so supposed to be worried about, because I'm sure this was true of, of movie audiences in 1943. I mean, that the weirdness of that relationship that throws the movie off a little bit, there's lots of things to be concerned about in regards to uncle Charlie and Charlie, right? Like, the way he approaches her, the way he interacts with her, there are moments when he is, looks like he's about to strangle her to death, and there's other moments when he looks like he might just start making out with her. And <laughs> I'm not saying that this movie is super sleazy in that way, but that un, that that destabilizes us in a sense because we're not sure what this guy is going to do. And I think he's one of the most unpredictable characters in a Hitchcock movie because he's not the hero. He may be the killer. But he has this weird fixation on this family. He, he is part of this family, and he could cut ties with it and bounce out of town. But that's not what he's doing. No, and I agree with you 100%. Um, I kind of led you with that question there. But I, I do, I think it's a gradual build of unsettled. You feel unsettled. You feel unnerved almost as you continue on. And I think 
there's definitely a scene and you know we've talked about that relationship so much but then we get to some you know actual some really harrowing stuff later even if it's not necessarily in a way we're used to seeing it as horror fans but um when we're talking about like a scene with a car which is very uh suspenseful i feel like and there's a the very final um last scare or thrill or anything. And I'm not going to go into anything about it. Usually that type of thing wouldn't get me, but I don't know if it's, I care about the characters or what, but I was pretty much on the edge of my seat for that too, because there, you know, it could turn out any way. You don't know how it's going to turn out. So I think this verges into almost that horror territory more than like you were saying, most of Hitchcock's films. I think you have the birds, which is clearly horror and psycho, which uh, pretty much you could say as horror, but I think this it's is horror, right yeah. there with the rest of them. Um, more than, um, I mean, sure. yeah. And I think the last third of this movie, like you say, so my issue, and you've probably picked this up from, from me at this, this point, you're aware of this about me. I often think that the first two thirds of a thriller in a horror film are, uh, are usually very good. Mm-hmm. And then often since the last third where they usually fall into a sort of rote sense of, we have to have a series of thrills we have to have the killer attempting to, you know, uh, chase his victim and the victim get away. And so there's a series of things that are going to happen in most thriller and action movies. And so movies will spend their time building these really intriguing centerpieces only to throw them away so we can have the thing that we maybe didn't want from the beginning, you know, so that we can have those those genre beats. Now, in a sense, that's what happens here. The last third is where the suspense and thrills come in. But I think this is an excellent example of how you can make this thing work because we're so invested by that point. And the movie has held so much back in terms of seeing any violence or even any excessive action from any party in this film, right? Like everyone is dancing around each other in a, um, you know, in a waltz, right? Mm -hmm. We see a waltz is the very first thing we see in this movie. We hear waltzes hummed constantly, but that's what Charlie and Charlie are doing with one another in a lot of different senses. But as these, as these revelations come out and one becomes aware of what the other one knows or, or thinks they know watching that kind of uh, cat and mouse game needs to have a good payoff. And then the payoff comes because we're not expecting it. I think to get quite as dark as it does. And you mentioned the scene involving the car. Like there are many, uh, thrillers i can think of seeing that the kind of scene uh and even in more recent movies is a film i'm thinking of that wasn't that long ago where where these sequences occur and i'm thinking hey you can go all the way back to to this film for that for that kind of suspense and that that kind of um you know the sense that the character is an actual real danger and oh my gosh what if the movie ends like this yeah, no, absolutely. And I wanted to pivot here, Nathan, because I'm about I've got down to my last note, but um, I want to touch on this and then we can touch on anything else you want to talk about with the movie. But do you think and I, I felt this way with a lot of Hitchcock films, at least early on, not necessarily later, but there is kind of like a weird shoehorned almost romance in this, right? Do you feel that especially when you've got the weirdness of the, how the Charlies interact with each other. Then you've got this kind of shoehorned thrown in. Or I felt that way relationship that develops. And I think that's, I've seen that a lot in these early Hitchcock films where some of them get it right. And some of them just don't. And I think it's, um, I mean, you saw a lot of romance. I feel like thrown in at this time, but, and I hate to keep bringing up Val Luton in all these episodes I do, but you know, these are the two 
kind of creator spotlights I've done so far, but a lot of his romances felt more earned than some of the stuff I see in Hitchcock films. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, you know, I think the thing is, the deal is with Luton, and I think, you know, one of the ones that you're probably obviously um, referencing is Cat People, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There's a film that's a film built around relationships, right? You you don't have a movie if you don't have that central sort of triangle that deals with uh, uh, Arena and Oliver and Anne. You know, the, without those three characters, you don't really have a story. And so the romance that occurs between them and, cause, you know, it, it does everything. It causes the rifts. It uh, is central to the supernatural elements, if they exist, or the psychological elements that are there. You know, so Val Luton builds the movie out of that. Now, I think the, the thing with this relationship you're talking about, in Shadow of a Doubt, is he, he, the relationship that matters in this, that, that, that Luton would have built on, and the Hitchcock and Thornton Wilder build on, the romance or the infatuation, the, the thing that people care about it's the stuff between Charlie and Charlie. Like that's, I mean, unsavory or not, just like the, the two guys that are obsessed with the murder stories, the the juice in this story is between them. And and look at Chanwook Park Stoker. He really starts to pull at the at the potential of a relationship between those two characters, right? Like it's a, it's different and the two feed off of each other. And that's far more kind of unsavory. Again, it doesn't even tip. It doesn't still tip over into, um, into something incestuous. I don't believe it does. It's been a while since I've seen that film, but it, it, it dances around it. So the, the intriguing relationship that we care about is what Charlie thinks about uncle Charlie and vice versa. And, that's proven by the fact that this character who is the love interest, he, he he's only really useful to the story itself to, to create another uh, stumbling block for young Charlie. When she realizes that, Hey, he's potentially, he's looking for this man and that man is her uncle. And that's how she learns about all this. And it creates this, this, he creates a dilemma in her. Do I tell this man about him or do I keep this information to myself? So in one sense, I wonder, you know, there is that idea of the censors look at this and say, okay, this creepy uncle niece thing has got to go or it's <laughs> got to be sidelined. So you need you need to show that she can have a normal relationship with a normal guy um, who may be normal. Maybe he's killing women, too. I don't know. But, you know, it seems to be doing that. But then Hitchcock and Wilder use it to really they use it to. Uh, destabilize the Charlie and Charlie situation. You know? So that's, it seems like that's the tool they use it for. And as such, it's not interesting as a romance. Nobody cares about it. It's not, it's, it's not the central relationship that we're interested in. Yeah. And I, I tell you what, I will give it credit for, I think a lot of the other Hitchcock romances we've seen up to this point are, oh, we hate each other and we're going to learn to love each other by the end of this movie. And I think it's almost, yeah. so it's good we don't get that. I, but it just seems, again, that was just a little, little sticking point I had. Um, it doesn't really affect my enjoyment of the movie whatsoever because I do like that character, um, that detective character. But anyway, uh, what else do you have on this, Nathan? You have anything else you want to say about Shadow of a Doubt? Just to point out a couple of scenes and a couple of shots that I thought are really good, really worthwhile, in particularly in the Hitchcock pantheon. Uh, one of those 
is that dinner scene that we've talked about, just the things he's saying, you know, yeah, such a deep contempt that you see come forward for a specific uh, talking about the widows and then calls and my whole family who, you know, they were watching it and suddenly, um, you know, I think one of my kids sort of started to become distracted by something else. And then he says something and he calls widows. I think he calls them like, what does he call them? Fat, fat pigs or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but, but he, there's a term in there like uh, because they've been my my kids have been like saying it all day. He calls them like what was it? It's fat simpering animals or something like that. And it, it and 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 he says, well, you know what happens to an animal when it gets too old and is not useful anymore. And that line of dialogue, it's just so it's so filled with malice and he's, he's saying it's at the dinner table. So when I saw this, he said, uh, and Nathan, not to interrupt you, but he said fat wheezing animals. That's it. Fat wheezing animals. And it was so that's, that was so evocative. And my kids just sit up and she says, but they're human beings. And he, and the camera angle is the side of his face. And we heard her say the human beings. And we just see cotton turn and look directly at us and say, are they? (laughs) And, And with a complete, complete sincerity a question well are they and you see what a lack and lack of care he has and 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 just true disdain uh talking about these people and he goes through this whole thing and it's it's interesting i think that the 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 malice and the vitriol that you hear him spewing because he really goes on about women he's really talking about women not just widows but you know, widows are even worse because they've taken everything a man has worked for and are just eating it away, like literally eating it away and drinking it away. And everything he's saying, it's just like it's every like incel Internet chat room troll that's ever written an article about why Ghostbusters and Fury Road never should have been made. It's all of it is distilled into this guy in this conversation in a film made in 1943. And then given the dark humor that that both Wilder and Hitchcock are putting in the film. The 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 sister, his sister, uh, Charlie's mother, turns around and is like, "Oh well, you you shouldn't come to my bridge club and talk about women that way. They'd be appalled." <laughs> and she's like making this joke after this man has talked about wanting to just kill widows just to, because they're fat wheezing animals. They have no purpose. And you know he ends it on that note of, "Well, you know what happens to an animal? He gets killed." The thing that surprises me, I when I first saw this film, I totally expected that at some point Charlie, Uncle Charlie, would engage with the father and with the Hume Cronin character when they're talking about murder, right? Yeah. And then he would correct them or he would offer his insights. <laughs> I mean, now that's what a modern film would do, right? Like yes. he would have yeah. some kind of funny scene or a scene that's yeah, or a scene that kind of realize, oh, we're not messing around here. But they are so they're so wrapped up in their makeup, make believe game that they're not paying attention to a man sitting at the table talking about wanting to mar- murder widows while there is a the headlines all over their newspaper talking about a widow killer. Like, this is just this is a fascinating scene. This is also very Lynchian. And then there's a scene towards the end of this film, uh, not to the end, but the Brady's were heading into that last final third where Cotton's character realizes that hey i have a kind of clean getaway right everything is sort of fall everything's coming up millhouse you know it's all going <laughs> it's all going well for me and we see him 
turn and triumphant. And this is kind of like could almost be the last scene of the film, right? He's striding confidently up the stairs. And you can see a moment ago he was ready to run and 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 leave all this because that might be the only thing I can do is get away. And now suddenly you see the, t- the, the tide has changed and as he's walking up the stairs and he's getting the swagger back and you can almost see the predator coming back too, right? You're like, okay, no, he's not, not only is he going to hang around, he's not, he's, you know, settling down isn't a plan anymore. So we're back right back in. It's like the, the person's like, I'll never gamble again. And then, you know, their debts get paid and they're like, okay, give me some dice. And so, but that scene, he's heading up the stairs. You see the confidence gaining. That could be the last shot of the film. And he gets about halfway up and he pauses. And he turns around, and who does he see standing in the silhouette of the doorway is Charlie, young Charlie. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment when you realize that he knows there's an impediment that he that that will never go away. Yeah. And that's the moment when you worry. Yeah, no, that's great. I completely forgot about the mother playing off the um <laughs> the line such of the table. Such a weird scene. <laughs> such a weird scene. And um I yeah, that's yeah, very good. There's so many good moments of this and as we're talking about it just more coming back to mind and that conversation between the dad and his business partner just (laughs) it's just amazing i can't i can't overstate that enough like yeah it's it's a really good movie it is one of i to me it is in the upper tier of hitchcock uh it's not it's not his absolute best but i thought you know i it would find its way into a top 10 hitchcock for me yeah, and I'm I'm kind of re-ranking these as I go along. Um and I obviously haven't gotten to the you know, the back half of Hitchcock's catalog yet, but I mean, it's pretty much up there with the top of everything I've seen so far. So, uh or everything we've covered up to this point. So, as, a, as far as a recommendation, what would you throw out on this, Nathan, as far as like Hitchcock fans, normal fans who would I think it's a must see. I mean, definitely if you're a Hitchcock fan and haven't seen this, it's a must see. It's a must see for fans of thrillers. It's a must see for fans of movies, a movie fan. I think if you're a Mm -hmm. fan of the movies, you're going to want to see this movie because it's so well done. And, and here's another thing is some of the things we've said might make the movie seem unsavory. This is a PG movie. A lot of what's in the film and that's to its, it's, it's a credit is uh, subtext. It's, Mm -hmm. it's underneath. It's not on top. So my family, watched the film with me it's a pg movie and they were not deeply deeply disturbed by it but they were intrigued by it and it was creepy and that's that all of that stuff works so this is a movie that you could watch if you have a family that you know you don't want to show it to really little kids obviously right but if they're used to watching any kind of form of a basic thriller i think that they you know you could get something out of this one i don't know if you feel differently um but it's a it's a really great film um and i i i like it a lot i would say you know it's up there um it's probably up there with the movies that he's made up to this point this is probably my favorite movie he's done although i really i really do like rebecca and i like the lady vanishes in 39 steps but um i like them sort of for different reasons than for the suspense and i think this is the best suspense film he's made up until this point yeah, and I agree with you. And it's funny you mentioned those, and I think you mentioned them before, but I think those are like the top of mine. Yeah, I mean, it's not Jamaica Inn. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> not Charles Lawton, but Joseph Cotton. He's no Charles Lawton. Um, but can you imagine though for a moment if Charles Lawton was Uncle Charlie? Can you just the Charles Lawton of nineteen forty three in this film? 
that's something to think no. about. Yeah, that would. Woo, man. Um, so many things you threw me off there, but yeah. Um, yeah. So, so what I'm, uh, I'm right in line with you. I think this is a must watch and I think it's got broad and mass appeal. I really do think it does. Um, even though it is kind of sinister and does have that tone, but I think this would appeal more than anything so far that I've covered to horror fans and thriller fans and especially Hitchcock fans. But I'm right there in line with you, Nathan. This is a must watch of Hitchcock films, and I think it could hang around in the top 10. I have to see when I go through the back half. I've purposely left those off, even though I know plenty of them will be ahead. Of he's what made the a lot got, of great but, films. He's yeah. made a lot of great movies. Yeah, but no, that's uh, so is that all we have on uh, Shadow of a Doubt then, I think? Yeah, I think so. Okay, well, let's pivot into a few more little facts, and then we can talk about the other movie we'll be covering in depth tonight. So this movie, like I said, released in early 43, but Hitchcock's contract was sold two months before that. And in response to this sale, and this is really kind of getting back, I think this followed him, I think, all of his career, his quote about, you know, actors being cattle. But (laughs) Joseph Cotton came out. Fat wheezing animals. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, but Joseph Cotton came out and he took to that quote and kind of fired a shot back as like, I hear they're selling directors as cattle now. (laughs) So yeah, but he would be basically sold to the highest bidder, um, by Selznick and that would be to 20th century Fox and he would begin work on lifeboat. Now I have not seen lifeboat. I know it wasn't necessarily well received in contemporary times and, It kind of took twice as long as it should to make. And from what I understand, 20th century really kind of fumbled the release and didn't really have their A game going when they put it out. So have you seen Lifeboat, Nathan? Yeah. And, you know, I was looking at this when we were talking about the movies and I figured, okay, we're going to cover this in depth. But I want to throw this out there for anyone who hasn't seen this. I guess public service announcement time. Lifeboat's actually a pretty good movie. It's not going to end up in the in the top tier echelon of Hitchcock films, but it's a very good little thriller that works with, uh, you know, it's got this one idea that it takes to, you know, the the logical extremes. All the survivors that were uh, in a a merchant ship that got torpedoed in World War II, they're all in the same lifeboat. And now uh, there's also one of the crew members that was on the U-boat that sank their ship, and they're all together on this one lifeboat together and now what's going to happen to all of them so very easy uh concept here right to 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 Mm -hmm. ring a lot of suspense and a lot of a sort of drama out of and it's got a good cast like Tallulah Bankhead is in it and uh you got William Bendix and Henry Hall and Hume Cronin is in this film too and I think that what it does and then you know John Steinbeck was a was a was a writer on this and the the screenplay Joe Swirling works on the screenplay. The, the the way it kind of unfurls is really effective, and I think that it's um it's not his best work, but it's absolutely worth seeing. I'd say that yeah, if particularly if you're if you're into Hitchcock, it's good to see Lifeboat. Though I think what you're going to find with Lifeboat is it's a conventional thriller that you see the uh, things we talked about with Shadow of Doubt, where the the acting is on uh, top of the line and 
the uh, the suspense and the way the film was directed is all strong. I think what happens is only so much you could do with this idea. And you can see why it took twice as long to make because now you're kind of stuck in uh, a setting and you're, you're you're dealing with a couple of different elements, right? These people are in a boat where we, you know, it, and the filming of it is set up a couple of challenges that distract from the filmmaking here or there. And there's only so much. You get some immediacy from a concept like this, but you also lose a little versatility with a concept like this. But I think Lifeboat does what it set out to do just about as well as you would expect it to, to do. And I remember when I came to it kind of later and I finally saw it on television, I was I was kind of like, wow, this is pretty good. Now, as it turns out, there was a TV movie done in the 90s I might have seen first called Life Pod that was the sci-fi <laughs> version of this where everyone's stuck in a sort of spaceship life pod. And are they going to survive? And that one was very contrived. But I recommend Lifeboat. It isn't, um, it's not up to the level of Shadow of a Doubt, but I think it's absolutely worth seeing. But it for Tallulah Bankhead, if nothing else. Yeah, and I didn't, um, I didn't plan on doing this one when I was putting it out. I don't think a lot of places had this as a thriller, but I am absolutely interested in Lifeboat. And um, Bill Van Bagel had mentioned, your co-host over on Phantom Galaxy had mentioned this one when, he was talking back and forth to me. So I definitely want to see Lifeboat. And it's funny you you mentioned uh, Tallulah Bankhead. And there's a little anecdote about Hitchcock, as everyone always thought he was, you know, enthralled by these gorgeous blonde women and stuff. But it's really said that at the end of the day, he much preferred the more fiery, crass women like Tallulah Bankhead and Carol Lombard and, and that type of sort. He really enjoyed working with them the most I think out of anyone. And it's probably because of his sense of humor and how we know that Hitchcock was characterized as so. But lifeboats definitely on my list, even though I haven't gotten to it yet. I just had to make cuts somewhere, you know, Nathan. No, no, I, I hear you. And, and I, I only jumped at that because it is a movie. That I think a lot of times just gets cast aside. We talked about, you know, how I think uh, even if shadow of doubt is always, you know, given, Maybe it's full due. It's always given due. But I think Lifeboat's a movie that just sort of gets sort of cast aside with a lot of uh, Hitchcock's other thrillers. But it's it's definitely worth seeing. It's got some good stuff going on in it. Yeah, absolutely. I'll definitely check that out. That's now two Phantom Galaxy hosts that have recommended it to me. So and Bill knows what's up, too. So. Yeah, <laughs> it has to be watched. But um, So after Lifeboat... Hitchcock would travel back to England, and I think he it was kind of a homecoming party for him, even though the war was going on. Um, he did meet with his sister, and he met with Sidney Bernstein, who I believe was, he was involved somehow in the British Film Society, but currently he was doing, uh, he was working for the Ministry of Information, and Hitchcock was meeting with him about directing two movies uh, as propaganda films for the war, as these short propaganda films. And I think that's mostly because Hitchcock's conscience was weighing on him. You know, he was having people from his homeland kind of, you know, throw shots at him for this. And he wanted to do all that he could for the war effort back home. So he would end up making The Fighting Generation and Watchtower Over Tomorrow, and he was uncredited on both. But at the same time, and these were all, well, I think Watchtower Over Tomorrow was 45, but the other three were 44. He also did two French propaganda films that were Aventure Malgache. I'm terrible at French, so that was probably awful. <laughs> and, and Bon Voyage. But these were two short 
propaganda war type films that he did. And that's what he pretty much did in between, you know, Lifeboat and his next film. Now, in December of 1943, when he was trying to cross the Atlantic, he had to do so in a bomber and he had to sit on the floor of the bomber. And the first time they tried this, he got about halfway through and they had to turn back because it was too hot to fly. So I can't imagine this. Uh, You know, this is a guy who had, when he was a kid, gone through bombings and, you know, shells landing outside of his house and in his town area and stuff. So he's uh, he's been through, even though he was never in the war, he's kind of kind of been through it. But as we move on, his next film would be Spellbound, which we'll be talking about. And he bought the rights himself to the House of Dr. Edwards. And he was looking for an English writer to pin the script. Unfortunately, the English writer that he had pinned down at this point, they had said had lost all ability to put together a coherent script. So he initially wanted to work with Bernstein on this, but I think Selznick was not all for that. Selznick was very bitter when talking about he better not be going over there to put together some secret deal. But this novel that he had got the rights to, uh, you know, this writer had was able to at least put together a short treatment and which would be revised several times. But Selznick was very invested in this when he heard about it. You know, it was about a lunatic asylum and psychoanalysis and stuff. And this was pretty much because he was going to a psychiatrist at this time. And he was just very enthralled with the idea of that. So even though they had kind of butted heads on Rebecca and had a pretty sour relationship, they met and began to work on this project. Now, Hitchcock brought in crime and war reporter Ben Hecht to revise the treatment. And he was said to be an excellent screenwriter at the time. And he would, he told Hitchcock, basically, you write the dialogue you want and I'll rework it. So, and they did a lot of work on this. They went and interviewed psychology professionals for background on the film. And they also had a psychologist consultant to pick apart some incorrect facts in the script. So they were getting pretty deep in this. Um, And I'll stop you there, Nathan. Anything stand out there to you on kind of what I've went over on the background of Spellbound? No, and I think, um, you know, the last point you mentioned about the level of detail that they went to regarding... Uh, the psychology and, and making sure they got those details right. I'm not going to jump the gun on this, but I think that that's, that's very evident when you're watching the film, you know, mm-hmm. and for a lot of different reasons. And it's always, it's an interesting anytime you're watching a movie, you know, in our current, uh, in our current world where we are, you know, anytime you're watching something 30, 40, 50 years later, and its perspective on something like this, and then even later in this case, where you're, you know, you're looking at some sixty years later, that how what we think of regarding psychology and what's being presented in this film, I, I think are very different. But it is very clear up front, like almost from the very opening frames of this movie, that it's trying to get those details right. It really wants to be, uh, may almost in a almost in a sort of like. Uh, sophisticated way right it really Mm -hmm. wants to to have uh like some some creed you know i think it it wants it it wants to uh have a certain level of ostentatiousness to it uh regarding the psychology i think this wants to be seen as a smart important movie about psych about 
uh, psychological issues and I'm not sure if it's successful on that front, but it's yeah. very clear that that's something that they're going for. Uh, and, it, and it and it feels belabored a lot in many of the scenes. Yeah, and I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, psychology was in the zeitgeist, especially in Los Angeles at the time. You know, it was very much uh, this new hip thing that everyone was kind of getting into. So I could see where they're trying to dive into that. You know, it. It was becoming popular among the Hollywood types. So I, I think you're absolutely right. And we'll definitely get into that when we get in the movie. But I do have some other like on set kind of things and how the film came together with some of the actors and how Selznick and uh, Hitchcock interacted. And I think something that you'll be interested in, but I don't know if you know the fact or not. So let's let's go through these and just stop me if you got any comments, Nathan. So Gregory Peck is in this film, a very young Gregory Peck. And he was foolish enough to ask Hitchcock what his motivation was in a scene. And Hitchcock basically responded with, it's your salary. And <laughs> <laughs> it said that Hitchcock did become very good friends with Bergman, though. And they would be friends throughout their lives. And it was borderline that people thought that maybe it, they were something more than friends, although knowing what we know about Hitchcock, probably not the case. Peck recalled that any time Hitchcock was around her, he seemed like something was ailing him. And we saw this a lot earlier in his career where he was kind of frozen up around women and he would need Alma to come in and kind of say, hey, am I doing this all right? Am I saying the right things? So very interesting there. Now, between Hitch and Selznick is he kind of learned how to handle Selznick. You know, on Rebecca, they butted heads a lot and they were he wasn't used to doing the things the Hollywood way and all this and kind of bowing to the producer. Well, anytime that Selznick would get on set, there would mysteriously be an issue with the camera that wouldn't be fixed until Selznick had left the set. <laughs> so, <laughs> but Selznick um, probably noticed this, but at this point he basically, you know, he had a ton of respect for Hitchcock and what he was able to accomplish. So he didn't make a big deal about it. Although he did take his, you know, his liberties in the post production and the editing and cutting. Uh, but he did say that he had never seen a crew that was run more smoothly as this film was. It, yeah, just his respect for Hitchcock just grew. Now, here's the part that you might find interesting, Nathan. You might already know this, but there is a dream sequence in this film, and Hitchcock requested the services of Salvador Dali to create a, this dream sequence. His vision turned out to be too unsettling, though, and was cut by Selznick. So for this, Hitchcock wanted a lot of these kind of bleary-looking, like, weary eyes involved in that scene, and he even sent a special effects crew member out to photograph eyes of these, you know, weary, drunk people in the city. <laughs> and it just yeah. didn't turn out the dream sequence we got was a little weird, but I don't think it got to the levels of it could have been. No. And you know, the, uh, I had, uh, I came to this movie later as well. I didn't see it growing up. And I remember taking a film class in college and, uh, the, the, the professor referencing this film, uh, he and I were, were throwing aside back and forth about something and mentioned, oh, well, you should see Spellbound. And because it has a Salvador Dali inspired dream sequence. And that was the thing I always heard about this movie was the it wasn't Gregory Peck or Ingrid Bergman or any of those things that was the driving force behind me wanting to see this film. It was the Salvador Dali dream sequence. Now, in the movie, it lasts about two minutes. 
And I think that you get a hint at what Hitchcock wanted to do, but it's a little less impressive than uh, you might be expecting, particularly if you're a fan of Salvador Dali. Now, of course, this isn't black and white, so you're you're lacking the color, but you do get some of the surrealism. But from what I understand, uh, and I think it was Bergman who said this originally was like 20 minutes long and very complex and a lot of weird stuff going on. I don't know what we were going to get. I'm guessing we weren't getting quite Inception, but it sounds like we were going to get something pretty weird and pretty like Lynch-esque. Yeah, because you're you, you you maybe even maybe more so than that, maybe something much more um, kind of trippy or or almost hallucinogenic that would I almost think of a movie. I don't know if you've seen it. There's a there's a kind of a, a quote unquote classic like Canadian 3D movie called The Mask that has a lot of very strange scenes that take place in a in a very like hallucinogenic dream world and i wonder if it wouldn't have been something akin to that where that whole movie sort of taking place in a person's mind inside of like what we perceive a dream to be like in like say the 1940s now what we end up with is what like two and a half minutes long it's not very long at all i don't think it's um and it comes at a weird point in the film and it doesn't necessarily um explain a whole lot or necessarily complement the movie so as the Salvador Dali dream sequence movie, Spellbound's a little bit disappointing on that front. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think this is kind of like, it's weird, and with that in it, it might have made more sense, but this seems much more like a supernatural tinge to it, even though there's not that. There's definitely much more of that kind of thing going on, but I think that Dali scene it goes against pretty much everything Selznick stands for, so I don't <laughs> think that was ever going to happen. Which is a shame because it's the... It's the moment when you kind of get away from the boilerplate psychobabble and you start to get into something much more interesting. I think something that is closer to the heart of what the movie is supposed to be about, that the the movie is trying to tap into. And it feels, as a result, it does feel like the movie is missing a major sort of set piece or a center to it. And it's probably that dream sequence. No, I think so. Absolutely. But, you know, apparently Dolly was like furious over this, but um, Hitchcock didn't seem the amount of work. Yeah. Hitchcock's (laughs) glad the movie got released. Yeah, he didn't Uh, care. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing about Hitchcock is he cared about the commercial aspect of the film. He didn't necessarily care about what happened after he shot it. He wanted to shoot his art. He didn't care what happened to it afterwards as long as it made money. Yeah. And you know what? And to Selznick's credit, they made a good bit of money from this one. And again, it was nominated for Academy Awards and everything. So it did what it was aiming to do, I think, in the short in the short run. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we I'll get into that here. I got a couple more points here and then we can get into the movie and I'll turn you loose, Nathan. But um, you know, Selznick did a lot of changes like he always does. He changed the opening, he re- which not a great opening. He revised some scenes and dialogue and shortened the film to make it snappier. So this goes into what we were talking about with and I hate to take another tangent here, but what you were talking about with Rebecca is it doesn't necessarily feel like a Hitchcock film. Well, it's very weird and I love Rebecca. It's probably my favorite Hitchcock film pre, you know, 1950. But it's weird that Selznick is the um, producer on both of those movies and the only two producing roles up to this point that he worked with Selznick. So, yeah, he made this movie snappier and it said like a lot of people, Hitchcock himself didn't think this was as intense of 
you know, some of his other thrillers. He thought this was just a normal standard thriller plot wrapped up in psychoanalysis was his, you know, postmortem on this film. So I think that gets into what you were talking about, Nathan, with Rebecca kind of having that different feel. And this one also having, you know, maybe not as similar of a feel to a Hitchcock film. Yeah, I totally agree. No, and and to go back to Rebecca, Rebecca's a great movie, and I love I love mm-hmm. Rebecca too. And in a lot of ways, it's uh, probably you know I know a lot of people that like Rebecca a lot more than say Shadow of a Doubt. I, I think that the difference is Rebecca feels like Hitchcock sort of being loaned out to direct a, a like an award winner sort of movie, right? Like a prestigious yep. sort of drama, and it works. It works really well. And again, it comes down to a lot of the actors, right? Like. Um, Olivier, things like that. Yeah, I think that there it worked. I think here, the the novel and everything that they have to work with is not quite as strong. And I say everything to work with. The actors and everything are great. And I think that they do what they're hired to do. But I do think that at the end of the day, this story, because it deals, it's so dependent upon the psychoanalysis uh, aspect. And that stuff feels so clunky now, uh, and it undercuts a lot of the drama. This movie is very, uh, I don't want to jump the gun too much in this, but I, I do think that it's, it, Hitchcock usually has a really good handle on the pacing and the structure. And the structure and the pacing, they really seem off on this movie. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And yeah, I don't, let me, let me get these couple things out of the way, because I think we want to get into this, because I've, we've been kind of talking about it already but um just a couple facts that it was released in new york city premiered on halloween of 1945 which is pretty cool and like you said it had won you know an oscar for its score and was nominated for six others so uh, let's go ahead and set this up nathan and we can just get into it because i know you're probably i know maybe we don't have as many notes as we thought we were going to coming on to this one but <laughs> um let's go ahead and i'll put out a synopsis here So this was released in 1945, and the synopsis reads, When Dr. Anthony Edwards arrives at a Vermont mental hospital to replace the outgoing hospital director, Dr. Constance Peterson, a psychologist discovers Edward is actually an imposter. The man confesses that the real Dr. Edwards is dead and fears that he may have killed him, but cannot recall anything. And I'm going to stop right there. That's probably gives a good enough without getting into any more. There's a few more sentences, but I don't think we want to get any more. And apologize for the jumbled reading of that. But I don't know how you feel with these synopsis that have like all the names thrown into them. I'm just like, ah, can you, can't you cut that stuff out? It's not important. So just just let me have it here, Nathan. What are your thoughts on Spellbound overall? So I'd seen the movie before and I remember enjoying it thinking, hey, this is a, it's a pretty decent movie. I do remember being disappointed by the Dolly dream sequence. Now, I, I watched I it took me two times to get through this one and I continually having issues of falling asleep. And part of that's just it was late in the day. But I will say this. And uh, my family sat down and was trying to watch this one with me as well, that this did not capture them at all. And upon a second watch from me. Uh, it fell off quite a bit. Um, I think, it, it, particularly as a, as a as a suspense film, I don't think it particularly works. If I'm being honest, not, not at that level. So I I was never really caught up in the suspense, partly because this is pure melodrama. From 
the musical cues and the and the decision for the kind of score that the film has it has this very like overheated grandiose sort of score um you know you think Re- rebecca has a sort of big score this is this is even more overwrought and then again the sequences involving the, the psychiatric angle and, and based around uh, bergman's character and and how she's interacting with these these all these male doctors around her and they're just straight up, Oh, you know, I think you, you need to distance yourself from your work. Let me kiss you in the middle of, you know, I'll just lean over and do that. And then her sort of cool response where it's just sort of like, she's not going to let any of this stuff rattle her. Um, I'll get back to her character in a minute, but the drop, but the stuff involving Gregory Peck, how those two begin to interact. And she's almost immediately, you know, they're interacting in a like sort of, uh, this is a woman who's clearly holding her career fast and protecting it and is sort of taking on all comers in that respect and is is formidable in that way when she meets this Gregory Peck character who who seems shady kind of from the get-go, right? Like in a lot of ways, it's like, is that guy a doctor? Maybe not, you know, and someone definitely didn't check some credentials there. And yet she falls for him like almost instantly. And uh, a lot of the, the, the filmmaking here never feels as confident or maybe maybe is interested maybe hitchcock it just sometimes it's feel like he really has his heart into it and then you'll have these sequences uh after she kisses peck and she's being accused of being sort of frigid and cold by others you know suddenly you have this this sort of like i guess it's a a a metaphor all these doors in a long hallway opening up one at a time and I mean, later on, where maybe it suggests something else is happening. But, you know, in this moment, it just feels it's it's kind of an eye roll in a sense. And as the movie continues, I think that the central mystery is brought up in a roundabout way. And then you're not entirely certain, at least I wasn't, about what exactly was going on. And yet we still need the Ingrid Bergman character to sort of like be behind Peck and still support him, even when it seems like it would be in her best interest not to, you know. And and it really movie bogs down when we get into the, the Dali sequences and things like that. These these sequences happen, but they don't really bring a lot to the table in terms of helping flesh the story out or giving it any added dramatic juice. I kind of felt it was very low on... Uh, dramatic juice now that being said i still think it ends up being pretty fun to watch to an extent because of the performances uh, particularly ingrid bergman's character uh the weird thing and i think this is what makes the movie interesting the weird thing about gregory peck in this movie playing this character who has amnesia is he never gets to have a peck is always good when he has these self-possessed characters who sort of, uh, they know who they are, they are sort of rocks and anchors, and they don't let themselves, you know, you look at the character in a movie like To Kill a Mockingbird versus his character here, this guy's literally a blank slate, like literally, right? Mm-hmm. And so Hack doesn't really, I think, have a lot to work with. And for an actor who always had such presence, he kind of just fades into the background of this movie, in a sense, I thought he did. And he never has any real chemistry with Bergman because of that. And so you're hard to see what this very driven woman sees in this guy outside of the fact, oh, he's handsome. But like, I I didn't get it. Now her character I thought was really well handled. I like that she is sort of, she's the, 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 the strong center point of the, of the movie. And in a way it's almost like the, the typical male female roles in a film like this are reversed. Normally you'd have the uh, male doctor who's trying to help this, 
woman who has amnesia, right? And the swooning damsel. But Gregory Peck is a swooning damsel in this movie. How many times <laughs> does he swoon? Like a lot. He yeah. passes out a lot. He's always holding his head. He's falling into her arms. And she's the one who's sort of put piecing the mystery together. She's at the very center. And her performance is really good. I think she's completely like saves the movie. Uh, and you can tell. And Hitchcock ha- ha- seems to focus the whole movie around her. Yeah, and I think to that point that it was said that this was maybe the best performance that Hitchcock pulled out of someone, at least to this point, uh, that he did out of Bergman. And there's a, so there's a lot to unpack there, what you talked about, Nathan. Um, I'm going to talk about the amnesia storyline, which I didn't really mind. I kind of liked it. At this point, it wouldn't have been overdone, I think, today. Especially, you say a blank slate, and um, I don't know, and not to bring, I'm going to bring up, video games twice in this and I hardly ever do that. But this blank slate, this is like a a trope pretty much in Japanese role playing games where the main character has amnesia and is a blank slate. And it's a very convenient plot device. It's in American video games too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that was like a thing where in the late nineties, early two thousands, that was like the thing is there every main protagonist has amnesia. And, but anyway, that's, I didn't necessarily mind it. I think at the time it would have been much more fresh than it is today. But yeah, it's Bergman really that's driving this film. I want to back up a little bit. The opening of this film, and you're talking about the psychoanalysis and the psychobabble and all that kind of stuff. This film doesn't do itself any favors even before we get into all that. I mean, it's almost six and a half minutes before we get to characters on the screen. We have an overture. And then we have, you know, that's before the credits. And then we have the credits rolling. And then we have this thing about this film has a psychology, uh, like a psychology consultant. And then there's a Shakespeare quote. And then there's this long description of what psychoanalysis is and how it'll play into this movie. And that is a lot of stuff to put before a movie. Like, yeah, <laughs> I think it doth protest too much. <laughs> exactly. To quote, uh, yes. to quote Shakespeare. Um, but the thing uh, about the psychoanalysis, are you familiar with the... Um, Metal Gear Solid series, Nathan. Yeah, yeah, yep. So they get into a lot, and it's funny because in that, in those games, there's actually it's a lot of a you know military espionage, but it's funny how a lot of that stuff that was predicted in those games is kind of coming true <laughs> today. But that reminds me of that that there's just a lot of this techno babble that doesn't really you get lost in sometimes you're like, yeah, this is cool, but why are you going on and on about this? That's exactly what I'm reminded of with this psycho babble that we've got going on in this movie. It's just way too much. And it didn't stick with me. I don't know. I'd be interested to hear if it, that kind of stuff does stick with someone. It doesn't sound like it stuck with you either, right? No, it slows the movie down entirely. And, and, and the problem is you tend to date yourself when you do this with a film because uh, it, you know, even even a classic like Psycho, it's it's a it's sort of a known thing that towards the end of the movie, it sort of derails just a little bit, right? Like just yeah, a little bit yeah. there at the tail end where it suddenly feels the need to explain itself. And I think in this movie it's a little different that this is very much a thing of the time. Like you said, it was in the zeitgeist. This movie's trying to be prestigious. I wouldn't be surprised if if you know uh, that when it's being sold, it's being sold as Here's the word in psycho, you know, analysis. And this is a story that's very much, you know, based in reality. And yet I think that the the sort of Hitchcock comment that you mentioned where he was sort of like, hey, you know, it's basically your average thriller tropes with a little bit of this 
with the psycho psychiatric angle thrown upon it. And I think that's that's very true. They two pieces don't seem to match up much. Um, it, a lot of it comes down to I just don't like the conclusion that much. I don't think the conclusion is really that satisfying to the film. No, it's not. And it's just hard to say, like, yeah, can you get around the psychoanalysis stuff? But it's like, Nathan, it's like it's everywhere. It's like there's a... Oh, it's the central a central reason for the movie existing. <laughs> yeah. There's a detective who's using, you know, psychology to profile Constance. And then there's Constance's mentor who seems off his rocker and a little way too much into psychology. You know, he's into psychology like Charlie was into Charlie. And I I don't know. I, I'm with you. Like when we get the payoff of why or what happened. Now, I will say... I think there's an interesting, if nothing else, this is trying to kind of shake things up on Hitchcock's normal, you know, his film type. And I think there's an interesting way. I think the film's ended in an interesting way. And I don't know which exactly like the reveal you're talking about. But when we get to where Constance is in a situation um, with another doctor, I think that's handled in an interesting way as far as like it's not a cliche ending, but. I don't know if it's necessarily something we're going to be thinking about, you know, a couple months later either. Yes. Yeah. No, uh, agreed. And I think you get into the, the end here that it just seems if you're to, if you were to sit someone down, probably even like say my kids and said, okay, here are a bunch of suspects. There's going to be a crime. Who do you think did it? I think they would pick that person immediately. I essentially picked that person immediately. I mean, part of it, it's down to a lot of things. You also look at, like, you read through this list of people, and you're like, okay, who's a likely villain? <laughs> and that that actor seems like he's probably a likely villain. But, I, so to me, it wasn't that surprising, even the first time through. And the movie, to me, I don't know how you felt. Again, I think Bergman's performance is excellent. I think she's very good but I just can't get a good handle on the Peck character. And as a result, it's lopsided from a character perspective. And I really don't care about any of the rest of these characters. And there's an opportunity to make some of these people inside of this institution interesting people. But, you know, I know a lot of that was cut too. The sort of nymphomaniac that we see at the beginning of the film who throws the book at her, uh, I think had a more substantial role and it was all but removed, right? Yeah, and I think... Uh, now I don't I'm not familiar with the novel this is based upon but from the brief synopsis I got of that it seems like a lot more of that movie took place in an asylum so I think you're right where maybe the original idea wasn't to go in this direction but I, I could see now I could see this I don't know whose idea it was Nathan but I could see Selznick you know like I said is really into this psychoanalysis right now and he's going to psychiatrists and all this stuff I could see him maybe pushing a little influence on the script to include more of that stuff. I don't know how Hitchcock felt about it. I couldn't find anything on how he felt about the subject, but given his films later on, he had to have at least a passing interest in the subject. Right. So yeah, I, I agree with you, man. I don't, I don't know what's going on there, but lost my train of thought. Anyway, <laughs> I'll pass it over to you, Nathan. But I mean, and so it sounds like I'm down on the movie, but here's here's the reality. I think because Hitchcock's involved, he does pull it out of the fire and it comes out it comes out to be pretty close, I think, to the sort of, uh, you know, solid 
kind of mystery thriller prestigious movie they wanted to make good performances looks nice the texture the feel of the movie are right on what's happening in that asylum and that interactivity is pretty cool you know i think that it all works a lot of what's in this movie reminds me of like later when martin scorsese does like shutter island you know not that the movies are really all that similar but they've got some of the same dna but i think just like for me it lacks a sense of immediacy uh that even Rebecca had that this one just doesn't quite. I think it's the problem is the story is just really not that good as a story. I don't think. Yeah, I agree with you. It goes into like, no, we both think Bergman did an outstanding job in this. Right. Um, And I don't know who she was up against, but it's like, it's kind of weird that she, that that was not the Academy award that they pulled down for this one. I don't know. I mean, I know you're really into the Oscars. I don't know what your your thoughts are on that one, but it's almost and it's how it felt with Rebecca about as far as oh, I'm blanking on her name now. Lead actress in Rebecca. Oh, um, Joan Fontaine. Yes, yeah. But how she won, you know, an award for Suspicion a year later and didn't win for Rebecca, and I thought it should have been the opposite, but. Well, they're always getting it wrong, really. Yeah, they're always the only one this one won an award for was best original score. Yes, that's what it's funny because I'm sitting here saying that I think the score was it wasn't that great. It was overblown. I think the score was fine, but the score does not quite fit with with the film. But, you know, it was nominated for best picture, best director, best supporting actor. And Michael Chekhov's really good in the movie, too. So, I mean, he definitely deserves some credit there. And George Barnes cinematography. Um. I really, I really did like the cinematography. I think that, you know, that's where you you get some of that back and forth when you're looking at Bergman and and Peck kind of exchanging glances and stuff. And a lot of that work is very well done, even if some of it comes kind of eye rolling in the context. Yeah, yeah, and I think it was interesting. I saw somebody, some composer, was you know motivated to get into composing music and scores because of this one. But I mean, I think Jerry Goldsmith, no less was the one. Yeah. 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 So that's who it was. Um, But, and it looks like Bergman had won best actress the year before this for gaslight. So she was a, on a hot streak there, but no, I, you know, it's pretty bad with psychological like uh, analyses movies. Although I, I'd argue gaslight is a better film than this movie. Um, it's, it's very weird that we're, you know, you know, it's saying something that we're getting into the cinematographer and the (laughs) talking more about the score of this movie. I just don't, I just don't know if there's, if this one, I was, I was excited for this, Nathan, I tell you going in, um, just the name alone and then kind of the overall broad premise, but it just, it just lost me in places and I don't, I don't hate it. I'm like you, but do you have any other notes you want to kind of talk about on this one or run down with it? Not a lot, really, other than, you know, I really would have liked to have seen that longer dream sequence. I think I would have liked to see the concept of the dreams, the concept of the psyche itself. I would have liked to have seen that stuff visualized in the film and not being constantly told about it. I think that had that the movie done that, even if some of that stuff still felt dated, you'd have a little bit more of a of a directorial vision. And I think that's the thing that comes down to whether what makes a great Hitchcock and what makes a just okay Hitchcock is Hitchcock. I think, you know, I don't think we think about this, but he was such a good director 
that he could, how do I say phone it in, but he could be a gun for hire. I mean, I don't think we, you know, we always think of Hitchcock as a master director, as an artist. We don't think of him, you know, in the same uh, context of, of, of like a workmanlike director. But I think sometimes he could be that, you know, he yeah. kind of do the Ridley Scott deal where it's a kind of show up and I'm going to give you exactly what you want. It's going to be well-directed and it'll be, make a lot of money and it'll look good on my filmography, but nobody's going to remember that I, you know, maybe. Uh, and, and I think this movie is elevated because it did get the nominations. It gets, got some of these awards and because of Bergman, you know, it still hangs around. But I just don't, I think that in the scheme of things, this feels a little bit more like um, he's doing a job, you know. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And he's done that several times in his career. And I think, you know, we talk about that. You can tell what a Hitchcock film is and what isn't just by, he's not a typical auteur is what I want to say. He doesn't fit the auteur theory. He doesn't write his films. He doesn't do that kind of stuff. Where he is known is in the way he shoots a film, right? In the way he gets performances out of characters and creates scenarios. Don't know if you agree with that, but I I back you up 100%. Like, Rebecca doesn't feel like a Hitchcock film because it pretty much was a David O. Selznick film. And you're getting something here. I think the difference is, uh, I think maybe because of what we've said about the production is there were... They had very differing views of what they thought this movie should be. Yeah. And I think that that disparity kind of shows up on screen a little bit because there's a hole in this movie and it's a personality hole. It's a hole of uh, this movie needs an identity that it never quite gets around to having. Yeah. And it's just got it's just got an exposition problem or an explanation problem. It's like we were talking you know, before we started recording about Tarantino, it's if the Tarantino, you know, kind of mundane conversations that go on for minutes were going on here about very much, you know, high level terms that you probably wouldn't understand a lot about unless you were in a field or care a lot about unless you were in a certain field. So it's definitely got way too many information dumps. Yeah, and you can tell it's getting late because when you said you wouldn't care about it if you were in a field, I imagined you were talking about an actual field. <laughs> Like, you know, like I would care about this if I was standing in the field. <laughs> yeah. So. so I think that's our cue to roll in <laughs> recommendations. Um, what do you, uh, what would you do as far as recommendations on this one, Nathan? You know, I think this is a, as you pointed out earlier, I don't know if we mentioned this in the actual podcast, but this is a harder one to get a hold of right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have it on DVD from back probably in the, in, you know, like uh, 2000. 6 2007 somewhere in there and i know that there are a couple of blu-rays but they're all like imports i think for the most part at this point um i would expect though that you may end up seeing this out shortly because they've been releasing a lot of hitchcock's films in 4k uh we just got a, a set that had shadow of a doubt on it for instance and you can buy that singularly as well so there might be some hope that spellbound will come along uh, if you are a Hitchcock fan, I think you're going to want this one, too. It is a good movie, I think, to an extent. I just wasn't blown away by it, personally. Uh, it's a mild recommendation. I, if you, I guess the term low-priority rental would be the case. I'd say definitely rent it and don't necessarily go out of your way. If you can rent it digitally, that would be the way to see it. Uh, again, unless you are the Hitchcock completist, then you are going to probably want it. Um, and if you are, say, an Ingrid Bergman fan, you're going to want it because she's really good in the movie. But to me, this is an example of um, this is why directors like Hitchcock and actresses and actors like, uh, you know, 
Peck usually, to me, he just doesn't quite work here. He's fine. But, you know, uh, it's why these individual pieces of a movie are important because sometimes they can pull something out of the fire when it might not be as strong on a conceptual level. And I think that's what you're seeing with Spellbound. There's a lot of good work that goes into this by the people involved in it that elevate it, even though I can say pretty, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, my taste is concerned, that this is not really an exceptional movie, but it has exceptional elements. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. And I wanted to say something really quick, Nathan, about um, as far as finding this one, you can find it on YouTube. The unfortunate difference between this and Shadow of a Doubt is Shadow of a Doubt is done by Universal, who, whether or not they put out quality releases, they do pump out releases. Um, this was distributed by United Artists. And the tricky thing with that is I think their pre 1950s stuff is now with Paramount, maybe. And their post 1950s stuff is with MGM, which is with uh, maybe Amazon here shortly. So it gets a little murky with the rights to this one and whether it'll be released. I think if you're a Hitchcock completist, you absolutely have to watch this. But for me, I'm with you with the lower recommendation just know that if you do want to find it it is available uh with i think that criterion print on youtube but i think it was a criterion dvd right yeah yeah boom so in all cases dvd the dvd i have is actually uh the premier collection it's not a criterion co- uh collection um mm-hmm. copy of it but uh and it you know it's this kind of standard dvd quality the one that i saw i think they're all if you're buying them there's nothing that's really at a normal price point right now because of the no. fact uh, unless you unless you have a region two player, um, that there's there's not a lot of that out there. But um, yeah, a, a, a fine movie. I'll be perfectly honest. I think I like Lifeboat better. <laughs> yeah, I think I will too. Just given the scenario of it, but yeah, I think that's all we really have. You know, after this, uh, I will be completing part five of this Alfred Hitchcock stuff. Um, on the next episode and where we're going to leave off here is Hitchcock's returning to England to renew talks with Bernstein and we'll see where that that leads him but um, I plan on doing I don't know if you have any recommendations Nathan but there's really only four or five films between this and my cutoff point but I plan on doing for sure Rope and Stage Fright um, I was thinking about Notorious I don't think Under Capricorn is really a thriller so those were the three I was thinking of. Maybe I'll just do rope and stage fright. I don't know, but I definitely, uh, I I would definitely do notorious, notorious. Um, okay, that one you're getting Cary Grant and Bergman together, okay. I believe, and that movie is uh, really good and has a great Criterion uh, collection, also Blu-ray. So it you know uh, it's available, but that's that's a really, in my opinion. That's a really good one. Only a few years after this one. And you got, uh, again, Grant Bergman, Claude Rains. That's one of those movies. We talked about the cat people uh, where you have the kind of the, the triangle and you have a triangle in that movie. Mm-hmm. And um, I think you particularly will really like it. It's got a great backdrop story. It's a really good one. It's it's an excellent movie. I think it's and it's kind of fun to watch Hitchcock back playing in the sort of spycraft kind of vein of things as opposed to maybe more of the mystery whodunit thriller. 
Yeah, and I've cleansed my palate a little bit on that, so I, maybe I'm ready to return to that. So, But that was my original plan, was to do Notorious um, Rope and Stage Fright. So that's probably how I'll wrap up this portion of yeah. Hitchcock. And but. as someone who's, you you men, made that mention about so far to this point, that uh, maybe Rebecca being uh, one of the outliers on that, but that the love stories just have not, uh, have not been front and center for you. That's yeah. where this changes. I think this would be the movie where he really comes together and says, okay, let's make this a love story. Let's make that the primary identity of the film. And uh, with the, with the thriller and the suspense elements uh, woven into its DNA. So I think you'll really like that one a lot, honestly. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I haven't seen that one, so I'm looking forward to catching that one. But um, other than that, Nathan, you want to, I was going to go into kind of what I'm thinking of doing going forward, but let's go ahead. Do you want to get your, um, plugs in and stuff and talk about what you're doing over there on Phantom Galaxy first. Sure, sure. Um, you know, uh, Phantom Galaxy, we're doing all kinds of stuff all the time. But at the <laughs> point this comes out, I think I am, um, I, uh, technically speaking, I'm running solo. Uh, Bill is uh, out in the wildernesses of Canada by the time people are hearing this. But it's not going to seem oh, like yes. that because yeah. we've recorded uh, three or four episodes with him, a couple without him that I've done with others, including yourself uh, by this point. And they, we've also got uh, Bill has been sending me many reviews <laughs> from <laughs> uh, from the Canadian wilderness that I'm I'm piecing together. So we will have a sort of Bill on the road. That's awesome. <laughs> little nuggets. Uh, I don't think he's actually common. So far, I haven't gotten anything that's like, oh, I saw Bigfoot outside the trailer. But uh, <laughs> a lot of like little mini reviews. So we're, we kind of have a just just Bill doing little little segments and vignettes it's actually pretty cool and he recorded a bunch for me last year and so i have everything he did last summer and this summer so it'll be like the uh the complete the complete bill van vagel mini mini reviews from the from the woods oh that's awesome the compendium the compendium yeah yeah (laughs) so we'll have that that's a lot of fun uh we've got a new episode coming up of the x files uh and you know we've got an at the point that this is uh, it, it'll either be out or about to come out uh, an episode, uh, another idea, <laughs> another podcast with a podcast. Although I think the idea here is to kind of ultimately have this uh, podcast that stands alone is a, is something dedicated to looking at home media releases and looking at Blu-ray and, and DVD and 4k and all of that. And uh, you know, having both you and Dave Becker along for the ride on that as co-hosts. And we did an episode that because this month in July is the month that Barnes and Noble for me, it's always like I highlight this on the ca- the calendar is Barnes and Noble does their big sale on the Criterion Collection. You know, we've mentioned it a couple times in this episode, uh, and if you don't know what the Criterion Collection is, we'll get into that a little bit on the show. But you know, they they restore classic films, uh, Janus films restores these movies, and also uh, Criterion gives them a really nice release with great box art usually lots of special features and usually the best possible restoration that's out there for a movie that usually if there's a criterion version of something like we've mentioned it's usually the go-to source right like most of the time that's the version to have and they always do a half price sale on barnes and noble usually these things are very expensive it's not that they're not still expensive it's just that they're a lot less expensive they're more in the normal range of like what you would expect to pay for a dvd or blu-ray or something like 4k so uh we will be running down our recommendations, you know, uh, for for what we think you should pick up uh, or, or movies that I think uh, maybe aren't the typical Criterion releases that you would you expect to hear. So it was that's that's a lot of fun. 
I'm trying to think of anything else. But yeah, otherwise, you can find me over Phantom Galaxy. It's at Phantom Galaxy on uh, Twitter, Phantom Galaxy Facebook page. We, we've got quite a number of people over there now. And we have a lot of people I've noticed, particularly in the last so, couple of weeks, we have people um, that I haven't seen before sort of interacting and sort of posting and things like that. So I encourage everyone to come over there. Uh, check us out at phantomgalaxypodbean.com. We've got a lot of uh, content up there, and there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff coming too because I I have at least like four episodes in the can <laughs> to yeah. get to get up and out. Um, but I think you and I are flush. I don't think I've anything with you in it that I haven't released yet, except for the um, the Criterion episode that is of this moment when we're actually speaking has yet to be recorded, but will probably be out by the time uh, or coming out by the time this episode airs. Yeah, you've always I feel like you've always guys you're recording constantly over there and always have like a queue waiting to come out. But yeah, and there's never a point I'd like to get to a point where it's like, oh, it's nice. But no, there's always something hanging over my head. <laughs> you know, just, I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, you do so much over there's so many different things. So it's kind of hard to, to keep up with. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that criterion for sure. Um, and talking about physical media as a whole. So unless you if you've been following the podcast, you've kind of seen a kind of um, a weird release schedule and some some different types of episodes. I think I've taken like a baby a month off of Hitchcock here by the time this thing comes out. The thing is, is I just, you know, I had a baby, so uh, things have kind of changed. I was able to get something out finally that Nathan and I had recorded a long time ago and um, gets a little bonus episode out on Elevated Horror, which was been received pretty well. I think I'm going to try to throw a little bit more of those in just those short things I do by myself that are kind of short one-offs to pad out the schedule as I'm getting back into the swing of things. But I will be finishing up Hitchcock. And then I think the podcast is going to take a little bit of a different change in direction. I think I'm, you know, I want to, I don't want to be so beholden to you know here's four episodes on a certain subject or this or that i kind of like the one i did with early euro horror where i was able to do just a different country each episode and talk about completely different subjects each episode but the director spotlights kind of wear on you so um yeah uh, yeah i don't i don't know what uh I, that's the kind of direction i want to go in nathan is kind of take a little bit of a little bit of a different turn now next i do think I want to talk about kaiju films, so that's a chance for me to get out and talk about different stuff. And I, oh man, I need to come could... back for that too. Yeah, <laughs> you can leave me out when you do whatever you do the Yui Bowl retrospective. I can skip that though. I'm good. Oh no, that that's not a <laughs> yeah, that's not on the high high list of things. But um, yeah, I just want to kind of change the format up and make it a little bit more uh, flexible and things like that. So there could be a a host of different things. I kind of had a schedule of what I wanted to do the rest of the year, and that schedule might stay the same, but it might just shorten an episode length and might be throwing in some one-offs. I've got one planned right now talking about another topic since I did tackle elevated horror, where I kind of want to talk about the phenomenon of, you know, somebody's favorite film of the year is your maybe (laughs) 50th or 60th film of the year and why that um, insight and, you know, incenses some people and (laughs) sends them into a rage that you would dare put that as number one. But I feel like I've definitely felt that. And I feel like everyone, you've probably felt that as well, Nathan, where you're like, how can you put that movie so higher? How do you regard it so higher? How is it so low? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, but um, I kind of have something planned around that, so stay tuned on that. But that's the plan. Let me know what you think, as always. I'm going to close this thing so Nathan and I can go to bed. But um, So you can find the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. You can also find a Facebook group, like Nathan was saying. Screaming Ages a lot smaller than Phantom Galaxy, but that's okay. We'll get there. There's also a phone number I've set up so you can call in and leave a voicemail, and that is 740-297-6556. You can email the podcast, ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. I'm going to totally call that number and leave, like, you know, like a Seymour Butts message or something. (laughs) I'm waiting for that, and I will absolutely play it, whatever you send in. (laughs) So just be aware of that. Anyway. So that's about that's about it. If you like the podcast, just share it with your friends. If you like. If you liked hearing Nathan here, go check out Phantom Galaxy. And if you like that, share that with your friends. Just keep it going and support this community. And until next time, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next biweekly horror movie history lesson.